Psalm 120. Uh, this is a song of ascents. It's the first of the song of ascents. In my distress, I cried to the Lord, and he heard me. Deliver my soul, O Lord, from lying lips and from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you? Oh, what shall be done to you, you false tongue? Sharp arrows of the warrior with coals of the broom tree. Woe is me that I dwell in Mesech, that I dwell among the tents of Kadar. My soul has dwelt too long with one who hates peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Okay, we have a sermon today, Exodus 24, verses 1 through 8, and this is entitled, This is the Blood of the Covenant. Uh, verse 1, now he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. And Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people go up with him. So Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has said, we will do. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord, and he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars, according to the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young men of the children of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has said, we will do and be obedient. And Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. Many times people have asked me, which book of the Bible should I start with? Others have asked me, which book of the Bible should I read next? Questions like this come up often. My friend Sergio asked me for advice in a Bible study he was doing with his friend over in Israel. He's a Jewish guy living in the land and Sergio was helping him through the book of Romans. After that, he asked, what next? I told him Galatians. The reason for this is that the guy was a young Jewish Christian and he was also in Israel. I can't think of a more difficult place to be in regards to encountering legalism and the reinsertion of the law. Galatians would see him through this. Paul explains very clearly what reinserting the law, which has been fulfilled in Christ, means. One becomes a debtor to the whole law. It is the setting aside of the grace of Christ and saying, I can do it better. After doing the study, Sergio agreed that it was the perfect book to go through. For those who know the law, especially Jews and even more especially observant Jews, my answer would be, go read Matthew or maybe go read Hebrews. Matthew shows Christ as the king of Israel and is written from a Jewish perspective. Hebrews explains Christ as better than. He is better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Aaron. He is better than the law. He is better than anything and everything that the Old Testament put forward. All of the old only pointed to our better than, our Jesus. In today's eight verses, we will see the cutting of the covenant between the Lord and the people of Israel. It is a covenant which can only lead to failure, not because the laws aren't holy, but because they are holy. Man can never be obedient to such marvelous laws. And so it was a good thing that the Lord later gave them the day of atonement to keep them from that disaster. And it is a marvelous thing that he later stepped out of his eternal realm and took that same holy law upon himself. Our text verse comes from Hebrews chapter 9. It's verses 11 through 15. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands that is not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. The words, the Lord, meaning Jehovah, are mentioned eight times in today's eight verses. 
The word Elohim or God is never mentioned. It is abundantly clear that Yehovah is God, but it is how he reveals himself, meaning Yehovah, that he deals with Israel concerning this covenant. Many look at this covenant as one of works. Has anybody ever heard that? The Old Testament is a covenant of works. Or at best, you might hear somebody say it's grace plus works. Anybody heard that one? I've heard both. But there is no such thing as grace plus works. It is either grace or it is works. The two are mutually exclusive. We'll see a picture of salvation by grace in today's verses. It is the same picture that we saw with Abraham, and it is the same thing that we find in Christ. God doesn't change how he saves. However, he does change how he deals with us through dispensations in order to show us our need for Christ in an incremental way. Once again, referring back to my trip two weeks ago, Tuesday to Chicago, I told you that while I was on my way up and back that I was looking for a chiasm and I found one in last week's passages. Well, guess what? I found another one in this week's passages. And so I'm going to go through it with you. This is Exodus 24, 1 through 9. It actually goes over into the next section by one verse, which shows you the astonishing nature of these chiasms in relation to all of the other patterns that are found in the Bible. Here we go. Exodus 24, 1 through 9. I entitled this, The Cutting of the Covenant. It's Israel's verbal agreement to the words of the Lord. Our first one is A, at the top. Now he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. At the bottom, then Moses went up, also Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. Go to B. Moses submits the covenant for acceptance. Go to B. Moses seals the covenant after acceptance. Go to C. All the words which the Lord has said we will do. Verse C, at the bottom, all that the Lord has said, we will do and be obedient. D, he wrote out the words of the Lord. D, he read the words of the Lord. E, he built an altar. E, he sanctified the altar. And F, the 12 children, tribes of Israel and the children of Israel. So you can see a harmony in here. And there is also a structure in here, which will prove something that I'm going to talk about. It's going to get confusing. But if you follow through with these verses, you'll see what's going on. Okay. The law is a giant step in the dispensational model. We'll see the dispensation of the law further realized and refined in our verses today. It's all to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. I have two thoughts for you today. The first is, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? It's verses 1 and 2. Verse 1, now he said to Moses, Scholars are often perplexed at the sequence of what is going on and the seeming want of order in the surrounding verses. What we would normally expect at the beginning of any new passage are the words, now God said to Moses, or now the Lord said to Moses. This is excluded, and it gives us a clue as to the order of where we are. The words, now he said to Moses, instead of the full title, puts the emphasis on Moses in what is a continued stream of thought from an earlier part of the Exodus narrative. This emphasis on him also implies that the Lord had been speaking to more than just Moses just before this verse. At no place, however, is anyone else addressed, and so some scholars, especially the liberals over at Cambridge, think that a part of the narrative has been lost. That would be a rather incompetently compiled word of God, wouldn't it? Instead of taking such an easy-to-dismiss approach at the seeming confusion, we need to go back and look at what has just transpired. The Book of the Covenant was just given to Moses. This included everything from verse 20, verse 22, until 2319 for the giving of the rules which regulate judicial conduct. Then from verse 2320 through 2333, which we looked at last week, came the promises associated with obedience to those rules. Thus, all of Exodus 20, verse 21, until 23:33, merely insert the book of the covenant. The account now picks up where it left off in Exodus 20, verse 21. Therefore, let's read that verse. So the people stood afar off, but Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. From there, the words of Exodus 24, 1, our first verse of the day, can be seamlessly added onto that verse. Let me read them together. So the people stood afar off, but Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. Now he said to Moses. In other words, and as I've already said, the account encompasses the giving of the book of the covenant. This is actually logical and it's orderly. 
One thing is given at a time and in a way which is intended to reveal to us the mind of God in written form. The importance of recording the book of the covenant in the middle of these verses is to show us what is predominantly on his mind, meaning this covenant. As we saw in those many verses, Christ was meticulously recorded time and time again. The earthen altar, the Hebrew slave, and so on. Each portion of the book was revealing to us our need for Christ. That is why the order is as it is. We now return to just before the giving of the book. This will continue until verse 3. Verse 1 going on. Come up to the Lord, you, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu. It is implied that the Lord spoke these words to a group of people before Moses received the book of the covenant. It explains the emphasis on Moses in the first part of verse 1, which those thoughtless scholars ascribe to a missing portion of God's word. Instead of God sloppily and carelessly losing a portion of his word, or even laying that at the careless feet of Moses, it shows us that nothing is missing and that God's word is complete. It may be confusing until you search out what's going on, but it is not a book of missing information or sloppy preparation. It's a book which requires a lot of hard work, a lot of study, and a lot of mental determination. In this clause, Moses is told to ascend to Jehovah and bring along with him Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu. Aaron is Moses' older brother by three years, and Nadab and Abihu are Aaron's two oldest sons. These three, along with Aaron's two younger sons, Eleazar and Ithamar, will be set apart as priests to the Lord in Exodus chapter 28. Unfortunately for Nadab and Abihu, they will be destroyed by fire when they present unauthorized incense before the Lord in Leviticus 10 verse 1. For now, though, they are given the honor of ascending the mountain with Moses as well as some others. Verse 1 going on, and 70 of the elders of Israel. The total number to ascend the mountain will be 74. Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 elders. These 70 elders, along with Nadab and Abihu, would then make up 72 people to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. This logically divides into six people from each tribe, but that is, is unstated. It's only speculation on my part, okay? The 70 elders would be those who were first mentioned in Exodus chapter 3 when Moses stood at the burning bush and he heard this, Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob appeared to me, saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites to a land flowing with milk and honey. Those same 70 are with him now. It is not stated why all of these people were to ascend with Moses, but I figure it's for probably three good reasons. The first is that they could then prove to the people that Moses actually received the words from the Lord and made nothing up on his own. In essence, they would be witnesses to the matter, just as the disciples were witnesses of the ministry of the Lord. Second reason is tied into this. When the words were presented to the people, it would add in greater weight to the ratification process. It would be much easier to dismiss the words of Moses as he stood there alone and told them what to expect. But these witnesses, with them, they would more readily accept what was received and honor it for what it was, the word of God revealed to them. The third gives us a picture. God is their king. It is a theocratic rule. Moses is the prophet. Aaron is to be the priest. And the 72 represent Israel, the kingdom. It is a picture of Christ and his church, the prophet, priest, and king among his people. Verse 1 continues, and worship from afar. In Exodus 20, the people said to Moses, you speak with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. After that, it said, so the people stood afar off, but Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. From this verse now, we can see that there are three different classifications and groupings. The first is the people of Israel who are down at the base of the mountain, okay? And in fact, they're on their way back to their own tents. Next, there are Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and the 70 elders who have ascended the mountain but remain somewhere on its declivity. They will maintain a middle position between the people below and Moses and the Lord who will be above them. And finally, there is Moses, the prophet, who alone will ascend to where Jehovah is. 
He has been set apart as most holy in this awesome matter of receiving the Book of the Covenant. It should be a sufficient warning to the people here, especially the elders, that they are not set apart in the same way as the Lord chooses to designate for whatever reason. But it quickly became and continued to be a constant problem among the people of Israel to blur these lines of distinction which were set by the Lord. In a short time from now, a man named Korah will rebel and assume that he and the whole congregation of the Lord are holy. The penalties for this rebellion will be memorable. First, for Korah, we will read this. Now it came to pass as he finished speaking all these words that the ground split apart under them and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the men with Korah with all their goods. So they and all those with them went down alive into the pit. The earth closed over them and they perished from among the assembly. For the 250 leaders of the congregation who rebelled with him, we read of their demise in number 16, verse 35. And a fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering incense. Even as late as King Uzziah, the Lord still demanded a distinction between the people for set purposes. The priest's job was not to be accomplished by the king. However, King Uzziah rejected this notion and he went to offer incense to the Lord on his own. The penalty for his arrogance was swift. Here's what it says in Chronicles 2 Chronicles 26. Then Uzziah became furious, and he had a censer in his hand to burn incense, and while he was angry with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead, and before the priests in the house of the Lord, beside the incense altar, and Azariah the chief priest and all the priests looked at him, and there on his forehead, he was leprous. So they thrust him out of that place. Indeed, he also hurried to get out because the Lord had struck him. Because of his disobedience, the Bible goes on to say that he remained a leper until the day of his death, that he remained in an isolated house, and that he remained cut off from the house of the Lord. And the Lord has not changed today. Though we are brought near to God by the blood of Christ, we still need to remember that he is God and that we are his creatures. The judgment seat of Christ will reveal much about how we conducted our lives in this regards concerning this matter. And I say that because we have people in pulpits all over America that snap their fingers and claim things in Jesus' name. We have people in pulpits that proclaim perversity, moral depravity, and all of these other things. I listened to, I'm going to just stop right here. I'm going to tell you, somebody sent me a link to a sermon by a Presbyterian in Canada this past week. And he said, just start at minute 50 and listen. And I was so utterly appalled. I was almost in tears by the time he was done. He was calling God she. He was saying how the, uh, the homosexuals are entitled to this and that, all of these things, saying that this is what God wants. And I thought, this man is so accountable, and he's leading all of these people astray because God's word does not change, and God does not change. And he was trying to twist scripture to make it look like God is changing. He called the flood of Noah, I can't remember, like a, a fable or something, and God made mistakes and all of these things that he was saying. And I was utterly utterly appalled. I was almost in tears listening to this. God doesn't change. There are going to be real surprises when we go stand before him for judgment. And some of these people will never get there. They're just just going to be cast right into the fiery lake because of their disobedience and their unwillingness to accept that he has moral standards that we have to live by. Verse 2, and Moses alone shall come near the Lord. Some scholars go in the opposite direction with what they believe is going on. And they insert these verses between 24, 8, and 9. This is also incorrect as those verses carry us into new and uncharted waters. But on the surface, they do seem to fit there, unless you are looking at the natural progression of what is occurring. As you can see, there is nothing that is really easy about discerning what is going on. Each section requires real consideration to grasp. Even some of the finest Bible scholars in all of Christian history get confused with these verses. And because of this, there is no shame in any of us being confused. However, To study these verses and then to misrepresent the progression of what is going on can only lead to an incorrect conclusion about later concepts that arise in the Bible. It is for this reason that instead of telling you about how good things are going to be for you next week, I want to explain to you the details of this magnificent word. It opens up treasures of wisdom and knowledge if you are willing to mentally challenge yourself to explore not just the surface but the reasons behind the difficult finer points. It's so easy to simply read over the verses and say, boy, I don't understand this. I'll look at this more closely 
next time. Anybody done that? I've done it many times. Maybe next time won't come. For now, and still prior to the giving of the Book of the Covenant, Moses leaves behind the rest. He is told that he alone would come to the peak where the Lord was. Verse 2 continues, but they shall not come near. This is speaking of Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and the 70. They have been given a high honor in being allowed to come to the point on the mountain that they're at, to partially ascend it. But their honor has a point of termination. The Psalms speak of ascending to the Lord in several places. One of notable passages is found in the 24th Psalm with these words, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive blessing from the Lord and the righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, Selah. In the case of receiving the book of the covenant, the question is, who may stand in his holy place? The answer is, Moses alone may ascend. Even the elders of Israel may not. Verse 2 continues, nor shall the people go up with him. Again, we have words which confirm that this was spoken just before Exodus 20, verse 21. This is referring to the rest of the people of Israel who had asked that the Lord not speak to them any longer. When the Lord called Moses up, he designated a certain group of people to come up and no others. It is here that we can insert the words of Deuteronomy 5, where the Lord said this to Moses, go and say to them, return to your tents to ensure that the people would not attempt to follow Moses and the elders up the mountain, we are told that they were told to return to their tents. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The answer is slowly revealed in his precious word, those who will someday gaze upon his face. It is those who have been cleansed by the blood. It is those who have called out to receive Jesus. Purified by him under the cleansing flood, this is what God has through him done for us. Those who have from him received such favor will surely receive an eternal blessing from the Lord. In his marvelous paradise, each moment we shall savor. This is the promise found in his holy word. Our second thought today is we will obey and we will hear. This verses three through eight. Verse three, so Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments. From this point on right here, the narrative starts anew. Moses and those with him had ascended the mountain at a set point, Moses alone went up to the Lord the rest of the way. There he received the words of the book of the covenant, and now it will be presented to the people. What is implied but unstated is that Moses heard the words, descended to those awaiting him on the mountainside, and then they together went down to present the words to the people. However, the word used to describe his transmitting this covenant to the people is safar. It means to recount Although it's not an unusual word in and of itself, it is a word with a rather special meaning. Instead of simply saying that he told them what the Lord had said, or he gave them the gist of what was spoken, it says that he recounted the words of the Lord to them. This word, so far, is used just four times in Exodus, and this is the last of those four times. In recounting, Moses is carefully speaking out the words to the people. It is as if he counted each word and carefully cataloged it in order to recount that which had been counted. In essence, I heard these words and I am now recounting them to you as I heard. He is speaking the very words of God to them in a faithful manner. These are all the words of the Lord and all the judgments as I receive them. Why is this so important to understand? The answer is that we cannot add something to the word of God or fail to include something in the word of God and still have the word of God. Either it is his word or it is his word twisted with man's word or it is man's word alone. And this is especially important for us because these words which form the covenant made between God and the people make a foreshadowing of the future covenant of grace which God made with us through the shed blood of Christ. In chapter 20, they said, you speak with us and we will hear. But let not God speak with us lest we die. Well, guess what, people? God still is speaking to them just through a mediator. Proof that it is God's word and not his is that Aaron, his sons, and the elders went with him. 
they can substantiate the truth of the matter. And so the words are recounted and an answer to them is expected. Verse three, and all the people answered with one voice and said, Ve'ya'an kal ha'am kol echad. And answered all the people, voice one. The word echad or one is used because although there were many voices, there was one unified message in the voices. A cluster of grapes is one, but it's made of many grapes. Echad allows a plurality within the singular. Verse three continues. All the words which the Lord has said, we will do. This is now the third time that the people have voluntarily committed themselves to the words which have been given. The first was in Exodus 19, verse 8. They did again in Exodus 20, verse 19. And now they say, all the words which the Lord has said, we will do. They have faithfully confirmed what they had committed to. The words were spoken and the words were accepted. However, there is the truth that a crowd will often agree to something in an animated fashion, which the individuals in the crowd may either later shun or that they may disagree upon concerning what is said. And so Moses will now go one step further. Verse four, and Moses wrote all the words of the Lord. Again, this clause confirms the order of the sequence as I laid it out. The words were received from the Lord on Mount Sinai. But only now, after speaking them to the people, are they written down. Each step is logical and orderly, and all of it fits together harmoniously when looked at properly. This is all confirmed by the chiasm that we looked at when we started. And that's why chiasms are so instrumentally important for our theology, is because they can show us a chronology of events that is hidden otherwise. They can show us something that is prophesied in the New Testament, one example is from Hosea, where Hosea makes a chiasm in his writings, and Paul uses those words to make a point about the church. And then Peter uses those exact same words to make a point about Israel, showing that the dispensational model of history is true, that Israel will again be in God's favor. But you would never know that unless you looked at the chiasm. But once you look at it, it's as clear as crystal. God is showing us things in these beautiful passages and when you find a chiasm, and I tell you, you all should be looking for them, write it down, share it. It is a beautiful thing to see when it actually shows you what is going on in God's mind. Note the order, though. We have the glory of the Lord was seen coming down on Sinai in chapter 19. Okay, In chapter 20, the Ten Commandments were given. After that, the people were so overwhelmed that they asked for Moses to speak to them, and they would agree to hear. Moses went up the mountain with the selected contingent of people, he left them and continued up to the Lord where he received the book of the covenant. And after that, he came back down and recounted what he was told. The people agreed to do what they had heard and only now are the words written down. Concerning the writing down of the words, it again points to the importance of the word safar or recount. The words that are written are the words which were spoken. If they were just the substance of what the Lord had said, then they weren't what the Lord had actually said. However, the importance of the words is entirely tied up in the coming covenant with the people. Think of it. God speaks these words to Moses and he says, hey, I want you to tell this to the people. And he goes down and tells them something different. And they make a covenant based on something that God didn't say. Do you think that's likely? This is God dealing with his covenant people. How much more important now that we're living in the new covenant? And Christ said this on his night before his crucifixion, right? I make this promise to you. I make this promise to you. I'm going to do this for you. And I'm going to establish that. We can't trust one word of what he said if one word of what he said isn't true. That's the importance of what we're looking at right here. And people take the Bible and they diminish it and they tear it apart and they tell us that it's a bunch of fables and it's a bunch of fairy tales and it was written over hundreds of years by people after the Babylonian exile. It is the most perverse theology that one can imagine. Because everything that I've studied, and I study, my father walks by my house every single day. He sees me on Monday, and I'm there, and I'm studying, and I'm reading, and I've got books open all over the place, studying one single word. Why? Because I know the importance of what God is trying to tell us is something very, very important. Now the words are written down. They cannot be contested any longer. Instead of contesting them, they are the written word of God based on the spoken word of God. They are the continued recording of the Holy Bible, which began in earnest in Exodus 17, verse 14, when Moses was first told to write something as a record for future generations. 
It is this set of words known as the Book of the Covenant, which will now be the basis of the most remarkable dealings of God with man since the world had begun. One more thing about this. Remember, they said this at the base of Mount Sinai. You speak to the Lord. We don't want to hear him again, lest we die. And the people feared and they trembled. And then in the book of Isaiah, it says that who is it that the Lord favors? Who is it that he will look upon? He who will look at my word and read it and tremble. If you don't tremble at the word of God, you're missing the whole point because this word is the same word. It's just in a written form. But the people trembled at his voice. We ought to tremble at his voice through the written word. It's the exact same thing. Verse four continues. And he rose early in the morning. Nothing is without significance in the Bible. Even a clause such as this. To rise early signifies diligence and preparedness. It signifies a willingness on the Lord's behalf to impart his graces upon us. The Lord did not rise late on resurrection day, did he? As if he needed the rest. Instead, he rose early. This is then a pictorial idiom as much as anything else. And it will be used exactly as an idiom later in scripture. In fact, numerous times in the book of Jeremiah alone, it is used to show the Lord's diligence and willingness to instruct the people. One example is found in Jeremiah 32. Here's what it says. And they have turned their, to me their back, not the face, though I taught them rising up early and teaching them. Yet they have not listened to receive instruction. Verse four continues and built an altar at the foot of the mountain. This would have been the very first earthen altar ever constructed according to the book of the covenant. The instructions for it were given in verses 20, 23 through 26. And in verse 24, we read this, an altar of earth you shall make for me and you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I record my name, I will come to you and I will bless you. Thus, this altar is where the Lord would come to bless his people. Now, if you didn't sleep through those verses, you know that this altar forms a picture of Christ. Thus, it signifies the first party in the covenant, God in Christ. Verse four continues, and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. These 12 matzebah or pillars are explicitly stated to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. They would have been stone, which was stood up in an erect manner. These would have been more than just memorial stones. Each would indicate the placement of the tribe in relation to the covenant. Thus, they represent the second party in the covenant. Moses would have walked between the altar and the stones as a mediator between the two. The standing up of the stones would be a picture of the permanence of these 12 tribes. For as long as this covenant remained, so each tribe of Israel would remain standing. That's a promise that the Lord is making by the standing stones. Eventually, a new covenant would be made and it would again be with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. If you've never read Jeremiah 31, 31, the new covenant is not given to the Gentile people of the earth. It is given to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And you know what people do? They say, well, we're Israel. And so they just dismiss Israel by saying the church is Israel. Well, guess what it says right after that? It says, as I brought you out, it's going to be a covenant, not like I brought you out from the hand of Egypt. Well, guess what? None of us have been brought out by the hand from Egypt. It must be speaking of Israel and only Israel. Now get my logic here. Okay. This new covenant is made again with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And the implication is that Israel will stand forever unless God is a liar and God cannot lie. God would remain ever faithful to them based on his covenants with them. We have to accept it. Whether we like Israel or not, I talked bad about them today in the prophecy update. The things that they're doing are abominable. It doesn't matter. God will refine them. He has made a sovereign decision to return them to the land. All we can do is say, thy will be done, O God, whether I agree with them doing the things they're doing or not. I've tried to be fair on both sides of this issue with, with Israel, but God has made this promise. It is unconditional from his side. He will never violate this. Verse five, then he sent young men of the children of Israel. There's a lot of speculation as to why young men are specifically mentioned here. It's not the elders, nor is it any other specific group who is selected. Instead, it only says that he sent young men of the children of Israel. No priesthood had yet been established, and thus the priestly duties fall on Moses alone for the ritual. These young men have been selected to be servants of Moses. It's possible, though unstated, that they were selected from each tribe to represent their tribe, but even that is only speculation. 
all that we are given is that young men were selected. The word to describe them is na'ar. And in this context, it generally denotes a person from a very small child to one around the age of puberty. It has other significations, but in this context, it seems to imply children of a youthful age, not yet adults. The reason why this is important is that in just about one year from this point right here, the people will leave Sinai on their way to Canaan. On the way, spies will be sent to search out the land. When they return, a bad report will be spread throughout the community, and the people will complain against the Lord. In their complaining, the judgment against them will be most severe. Numbers 14 says this, The carcasses of you who have complained against me shall fall in this wilderness, all of you who are numbered according to your entire number from 20 years old and above. What this verse now seems to imply is that these young men will not be punished in the wilderness. The Lord, knowing what will occur, has selected youth from Israel for this task who will be young enough at the time to be exempt from the curse and who will thus be allowed to enter the land of promise. What is surprising in this is that even Moses himself will be barred from entering Canaan because of his own misdeeds. If these young men are allowed to pass over Jordan and into Canaan, it is for a good reason. They, they will be able to recount the day that they stood at the base of Sinai and participated in the reception and the confirmation of this sacred covenant. In this here is a foreshadowing of Christ's selection of 12 apostles on another mountain 1,500 years later. We see pattern after pattern of Christ and everything that Israel did, Christ did in fulfillment of it. It's wonderful. It's marvelous to see. Verse 5 continues, who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. The burnt offering or olah is given in gratitude to the Lord and as a means of seeking his favor and receiving propitiation from him. Noah made an olah after coming out of the ark. He sought the favor of the Lord, and he sought a restored relationship with mankind through it as well. These burnt offerings would normally be completely burned up on the altar as an offering to God. The shalem, or peace offerings, comes from the word shalom, which means to make amends. The peace offering then is one intended to satisfy the Lord and to bring about a sense of alliance or friendship. For this reason, some translations call them fellowship offerings. Unlike the burn offerings, these peace offerings would normally have a portion burned up on the altar, and at the same time, the portion which was not burned up would be eaten by the participants. Thus, the idea of a fellowship offering conveys the idea quite well. The young men of Israel are those who were chosen for this task. In looking at their age, based on what I mentioned concerning the punishment on those 20 and above, we can see that the Lord regards them as more in a state of innocence than those who are older and thus another possible reason for their selection. Verse 6, And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins. It is of singular note that Moses takes half the blood and uses it for one purpose and the other half for another. It's all the same blood, but the division has purpose and intent. He takes one half of it and he puts it in basins. This basin is a new and a very unusual word found in the Bible. It is agan, and it's seen only three times in all of Scripture. Once here, once in the Song of Solomon, and finally once in Isaiah. It's not a priestly word that is later used for such things. Rather, it's a common type of basin. It would have had handles, as we see from this verse in Isaiah. They will hang on him all the glory of his father's house, the offsprings, the offspring and the posterity, all vessels of small quantity, from the cups, that word agon, to the pitchers. As Isaiah notes, they can be hung, thus implying handles. Surprisingly, the only other time that this is used is found in the Song of Solomon, and it's speaking of the navel of Solomon's beautiful bride. Here's what it says. Your navel is a rounded goblet and a gun. It lacks no blended, no blended beverage. Your waist is a heap of wheat. So my question is, are we to learn from Isaiah's explanation of this verse that Solomon's beauty had love handles? All fun aside, one half of the blood is set aside for one purpose, and the other half is set aside for another, which is now explained. Verse 6 continues, And the half, half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. The word here for sprinkle is zarak. It means to scatter. The only other two times it was used was during the plague of boils, when Moses scattered the dust of the furnace towards the sky. Now it is first used in connection with sacrifices. 
However, in this verse, it is more appropriately translated as splashed. The amount of blood would be considerable, and it would be poured out or splashed on the altar. According to the Bible, the life is in the blood. The blood being poured out signifies the death of the innocent animals in place of sinful man. They died in order to confirm the covenant. The blood of the sacrificial animals standing in place of the people is symbolic of complete surrender of the people of God. It is as if they have died and their life was being poured out in acceptance of what would then be read. And yes, the words have not yet been read to the people. In this, John Lang most wisely notes, he says, surrender in general in accordance with the conditions of grace must precede obedience in particular according to the law. In other words, yielding comes before obedience. It is a picture realized in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God and not of works lest anyone should boast. Even the Old Testament shows that no one comes to God with empty hands. It is not by deeds that one is saved. Rather, it is by grace and through faith. The people have done nothing yet, nothing at all, in order to merit God's grace except to assume that the blood of the covenant is sufficient to enact the covenant. Abraham discovered this, Genesis 15, 6, and he believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. It is the seal of his righteousness. It is also the evangelical seal of our righteousness. And guess what? It is also sealed upon the law of Moses itself. Even the Ten Commandments are introduced with this type of language. Here's what it says in Exodus 20, verse 1. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. God redeems. We have no part in our salvation except to believe and to receive. This is what Paul precisely states in Ephesians chapter 1. He says, in him, meaning Christ, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Moses, acting as their mediator, splashes the blood of the animal on the earthen altar, thus signifying their yielding to God. All of it is picturing the future work of Christ for us, the altar, the blood, the grace through faith. Only after the blood is splashed on the altar are the words of the covenant read aloud. Verse 7, then, then he took the book of the covenant and read in the hearing of the people. Only after yielding to God through the sacrifice does Moses now read the written word to the people. It says, ha'am, and proclaimed in the ears of the people. It is more graphic in the Hebrew than when translated. It is the very words that they had heard and agreed to, but now they are set in writing. He is repeating the book to them now so that they know that it is what the Lord is also agreeing to in this covenant. Verse 7 continues, And they said, All that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. These words, Kol asher deber Yehovah na'aseh ve'nishmah, are almost exclusively translated in this way. We will do and be obedient. In fact, only one of the 20 Bibles that I read, the Jubilee Bible says, all that the Lord has said we will do and we will hear. This is correct. The word Shema means to hear, right? But hearing is often associated with obedience, such as, I want you to hear me, which means I want you to do as I say. However, one cannot be obedient unless they first hear. In the final portion of the Book of the Covenant, which is the section concerning the promises, it says this, Behold, I send an angel before you to keep you in the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Beware of him and obey his voice. Do not provoke him, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. But if indeed you obey his voice and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. In other words, more words of instruction are coming from the Lord to which the people must be attentive. This is why they have added on to their statement of verse 3, the words, and we will hear. They have committed to doing even before hearing. Do you see that in the chiasm? Look at the chiasm and it's perfectly obvious. 
those words we will hear are added on to what they had said in verse 3. Note, it doesn't say that we will hear and then we will obey. It says that we will do and then we will hear. The book of the covenant is not the entire body of law. It is what the entire body of the law, excuse me, is based on. And so only after this commitment does the Lord accept the people's offering through Moses' mediation, which is verse 8, our last verse of the day. And Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. This is the regeneration of the Holy Spirit right here. You are saved by grace through faith. After belief, then you received the Holy Spirit according to Ephesians 1. That's it right there. If the splashing of the blood on the altar denoted the surrender of the people to the will of God, then the sprinkling of the people with the blood is the acceptance of the people by God who proposed the covenant to them. The same word Zarak is used, but Kyle notes that the form it is in indicates sprinkling rather than splashing. The poured out blood symbolized their death. The sprinkled blood denotes the renewal of life and thus the people's transposition into the kingdom of God. The sins of the people are symbolically carried away and they are sanctified as God's people. All of this only looks forward to the greater work of Christ. The half of the blood splashed on the altar look forward to the satisfaction of God's anger at our sin through the shed blood of Christ. The half sprinkled on the people look forward to the purification of us through his blood and the sanctification of the Spirit. Today's eight verses have been literally filled with information, certainly more than any of us is going to be able to remember. But remembering the details is not the point. Understanding the overall premise is, if you can remember that you are saved by grace, through faith, apart from works, then you have understood the overall message. As we continue through the law, you'll also learn that good works are not going to keep anybody saved. This is why God gave Israel a day of atonement. If you trust in your good works, then you're probably not a saved person. And I got into a debate with somebody a little while ago about this exact fact. He says you have to have deeds in order to prove that you're saved or you're not saved. Well, my guess is that guy's probably not saved if he thinks he has to keep doing something in order to be saved. You call on Jesus by faith and you are saved by grace through faith and you continue to be saved by grace through faith every step of the way. Everybody should have good works. Every single person should have good works. But if you don't, it does not negate God's faithfulness in Christ to the covenant, as we see in this set of verses today. What you need to do is to trust in God's mercy, despite your many failings. If you have good works for the Lord, I got to tell you what, that's a very good thing. But they can never replace your wholehearted dependence on Christ. As the Bible says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And if you've never trust, trusted the grace of Christ to save you from the pit of hell, Today would be a good day to do so. Here's all you need to know. We have sinned. We need a savior. We are lost. We need a redeemer. It's all pictured in these verses from Exodus 20 verse 1 until today. We've got this 10 commandments in the book of the covenant. And God is making all these promises. And he says, if you do these things, certain things will happen. And then the people say, everything that you have said, we will hear, we will obey, and we will hear. In other words, I'm putting my life and my trust in you. And then I'll do whatever you tell me to do. That's why we don't get all the theology in the world and then call on Jesus Christ. We call on Jesus Christ and then we get discipled and we grow in our theology. And how many people try to put the theology first? They go to seminaries. They don't believe in the word of God, but they try to get all of the theology. They preach false messages in the, the world today that are enough to make me just want to just, yeah, just throw up, just go right out of my skin at what people say because they have tried to put theology before faith. And once the faith is there and you're sealed with the Spirit, he will direct you in the step that you should go. But you have to call on Jesus Christ by faith first. And after that, you are saved. Go do good works for the Lord. Trust in him. That's what God is asking and he's showing us this in the Old Testament. As I began the sermon with, grace plus works is not grace. The law was never a law of works. There were works for them to do, but when they didn't do them, they had the Day of Atonement to forgive them for not doing their works or for messing up the works that they did do. It was always by grace, and people missed that. But the law was there to show us that we, our desperate need for something greater, Jesus. Okay? Our closing verse today comes from Hebrews 9. It's verses 17 through 20. It talks about what we just saw. For where there is a testament, 
There also of necessity must be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet, wool, and hyssop, and he sprinkled the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. There it is. You've accepted my words, and now I'm sanctifying you, and I'm giving you my Holy Spirit. Pictured right in the Old Testament. Next week, Exodus 24, 9 through 18. Question, what will Moses find there? A bubbling fountain? It's entitled, Come Up to Me on the Mountain. That'll be your 65th Exodus sermon. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. And even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, he can part the waters. I'll, I'll give you a perfect example of water parting right now. I am theologically confused. I don't know what is true. I don't know what is correct. I'm in a Jehovah's Witnesses. I'm in a church here. I'm in this church here. I have an ocean in front of me, and I can't part it. Well, guess what? He's already parted. He's given us his word. All we have to do is read it. That's all we have to do. He can part the waters, and he can lead you through it on dry ground. So follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Do not trust man ever. And as I say to you in the Bible studies, I'll say today, don't trust me. I would expect every person here to go back and read the sermon notes and to think about it and to compare it with what you already know and to continue studying because I could be completely wrong on these points. And I guarantee you I'm not. I may have missed a point or two, but I assure you that this is what God is trying to tell us. And that chiasm shows us it as clear as it can be. Do you see it? Did you follow along in the chiasm? It's wonderful. Poem today, The Blood of the Covenant. Now he said to Moses, he did tell, come up to the Lord, you, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar as I am instructing you. And Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people go up with him, hear my word, only Moses shall come up here. So Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord, the judgments through and through, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has said, we will do. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord, and he rose early in the morning as well, and built an altar at the foot of the mountain, and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. Then he sent young men of the children of Israel, who offered burnt offerings, and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. These were the people's profferings. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins for the covenant rite, and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar, the sacrificial blood crimson and bright. Then he took the book of the covenant and read in the hearing of the people too. And he said, all that the Lord has said, we will do and be obedient. This our word to you. And Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said to them too, this is the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made according to all these words with you. The covenant was sealed in blood before the Lord and the people agreed to its words as one. And it came into effect that day with the sprinkling of the blood, the sealing was done. A new covenant came many years later. Christ offered to the house of Israel and the house of Judah too, and it was sealed in his blood for them, but the Gentiles have been offered it too. All who come to Christ through faith will be received as children of God. It is a promise for all times. Thus the Lord saith that through Christ for eternity, heavenly streets we will trod. What a marvelous thing to understand, to know what God has done for the world in Christ Jesus. Thank you, O God, for promises so grand. Thank you for all you have done for us. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, I just am so thankful for having been given the chance to study these verses and present them in a sermon. I honestly, before I started, had no idea the order of these things. I had no idea the significance of them. And as time after time, you continue to teach me, and I'm so thankful to be able to pass this learning on to other people as well. What a word. What a harmonious, perfect beautiful word you have given us. It is so precious and it shows us all the love you have for us in Christ. Thousands and thousands of years of human history detailed in a group of people, a wayward group of people with stiff necks who even this day are not pursuing you. And yet you show mercy on them because of your covenant with them. And in the process, you've shown that same mercy on a completely different group of people that fill the world with every culture, every tongue, every color. And you've called us all to yourself if we will just simply believe 
and respond. Thank you for that gift. We pray for all those people that are out traveling today. And I want to say a special prayer for Steve, who we'll miss for the next four months as he performs his duties. And I would pray that he does them well and that uh, he enjoys his time up there. And uh, for all the others that are out there doing whatever or in whatever shape physically, that you would remember them and take care of them. And uh, Lord, we love you. You sure are great to us. And we are undeserving of even the minutest favors. And yet you lavish grace upon us. What a great God. Hallelujah to your name. Amen. And we get the instruction for the Lord's Supper directly from the uh, book of 1 Corinthians, right out of God's precious word. And he says these words, uh, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And he would have given thanks over it with these words. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu, Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it. And he said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he took the cup after supper, and he would have blessed us as well. He would have said, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu, Melech HaOlam, Borei Puri Hagafen. Blessed art thou, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. I want to remind you that that animal that died and, you know, its blood was poured out. That's a picture of what we're doing right here. Christ's blood was poured out for the satisfaction of our anger. Okay? And then when we receive this, it is sprinkled upon us for the purification and our sanctification and for our reception of the Holy Spirit. That comes when we believe. And now we're honoring that. All of that that he did for us every single week in the taking of the elements. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, eats and drinks judgment uh, did I get that wrong? Yeah, uh, will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ.
the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. 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 Wow. Wonderful verses today, wasn't it? I, I tell you, I, I get so excited when I see things about the, the blood of Christ and the pictures that are in there. It's like the earth and altar and how every detail pictures them and the manna and everything. Everything points to Christ. And boy, we've got uh, next week, Moses is going to ascend the mountain again. He's going to go up there to receive the law and the final finer points of the building of the tabernacle. The week after that, we're going to get the details, what he needs to gather for the tabernacle. And the third week after that, the Ark of the Covenant. I'm going to tell you what, you're not going to believe. If you're around here for those uh, sermons on the details of the Ark, you're not going to believe it. You're not going to believe every word points to Jesus. It is, it is astonishing. You're just not going to believe it. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word. Thank you that every detail points to Jesus who came to redeem us from our sins. Help us not to live in our sins or to put them on other people's faces, but to hold fast to the gospel of truth, the gospel that you have freed us from those things and to, we're to live holy and righteous. And we all fail, every single one of us. So when we do, forgive us, cleanse us, and purify us once again. Keep us on the straight and narrow path. And uh, I pray for each person here that they'll get home safely and that you'll just bless their socks off in the week ahead. We do love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.